Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car in impulse or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say yes to a proposal from your significant other and start a family or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it. Whatever happens, when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. I feel incredibly lucky to have had so many smart people from all sorts of different disciplines on this show. But every now and then, I'll be sitting across from someone and think, oh my God, I'm such a fucking dumbass. This person is way too smart for me. And Alex Ross is one of those people. He's the music critic for The New Yorker where he mostly writes about classical recordings and performances, but he's also written profiles about modern pop things like Radiohead and Bjork and uh, a while back, even on Pavement. And he has this way of making people understand why music is relevant to them. It's why I'm a huge admirer of his work because a guy like me doesn't know that much about opera, classical music, or jazz or modern classical music. So to hear him talk about Wagner in these associative ways is incredibly fruitful and beneficial to a guy like me. And he's writing this massive book on Ricard Wagner, widely considered one of the greatest composers of all time. And when he compared Wagner to Bob Dylan, you know, Wagner is the Bob Dylan of his era, everything sort of made sense to me. And I immediately, instantly understood Wagner better because he's a figure that I've had some idea of his music. You hear Wagner's music in some like fantastic movies and such, but I'm not the biggest classical music aficionado. I don't listen to it all the time, but he's someone I know from having to study Friedrich Nietzsche and a lot of his works. He's a name that constantly comes up in Nietzsche's writings. I'm also the last person that should be talking about Nietzsche at all. Like, my professors in college would be so pissed because I did not do well in their classes. Anyway, as with Jerry Saltz and Roberta Smith, I love speaking to critics from outside the food world to understand what they do and maybe glean some lessons from my own world. Food's a lot younger, and it's only recently been something that is studied as an art form, if you want to call it that, you know, painting, sculpture, music, that stuff's been around forever, and we've been studying them so we can learn a lot more from these forms. If I can study something I know nothing about, maybe I can find some patterns that I can relate to the culinary world. Anyway, I'm a big fan of Alex. I'd encourage you to check out his writing, whether it's The New Yorker or his books. He's a fabulous writer. I especially wanted to talk to him right now because he recently wrote this amazing article for The New Yorker called Nietzsche's Eternal Return and how Nietzsche has become this hero for people of all ideologies and beliefs, even completely contradictory ones. And if you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm someone who cites Nietzsche a lot. He's someone 
that I've read a lot more the past year or so. And uh, I mean, I'm not going to say a lot of people read him, but he's a very obviously widely read philosopher in college and didn't really resonate with me as it does now because I think I have some more life experiences and, and I can read them in a different light. I apologize if this podcast gets way into the weeds on that. Anyway, I will shut up and let you listen to someone much smarter than me, Alex Ross. I'm with Alex Ross, the music critic for The New Yorker. You've written two books. You're working on your third book, the book that is called The Rest is Noise, Listen to the 20th Century. You are finalist for the Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and it's cool. it's a... Uh, it probably took you a while to make that book, write that book, I would imagine. Yeah, I have a little bit of a history of, of <laughs> uh, handing in my books, you know, six, it's so six com- or seven years after I, <laughs> I'm supposed to. Uh, so I spent, I started working on The Rest is Noise, my first book around 1999, 2000. And so that was published in 2007. Then the second book, Listen to This, was a collection of essays. So that was that didn't turn into a, you know, quagmire. And then the new book, which is coming out next year, called Wagnerism, I uh, started pretty much nine years ago. Um, and so I just handed in the manuscript like a couple weeks ago. Uh, Congratulations. So, <laughs> thanks so much. Because if you read your work, you sort of get like, you know, little feeds that you're working on this book. Working right, on this yeah. Book. Um, how, how is that to spend that much time on this project? Because in this regard, you're not a critic anymore. You're a creator of something. Right, yeah. It's definitely not criticism. It is, you know, I'm not a trained scholar or historian. Uh, and yet, you know, I, I did a lot of research uh, for this book in particular, and it was just many years of of reading. I should explain, the book is about Richard Wagner's influence on pretty much everything since uh, his lifetime until the present, but especially on the arts and literature. And uh, around 1900, he was the creative figure in essentially every art form that you you had to have an opinion about him. You know, you could embrace him, you could reject him, you could have a mixed opinion, but, but everyone had to have a stance uh, on Wagner in a sense. So he had a, a huge effect on so many writers, poets, painters, pretty much anyone you can think of, uh, Baudelaire, Marcel Proust, uh, Thomas Mann, Virginia Woolf, uh, James Joyce, it goes on and on. And so I wanted to just grapple with that. Um, and it's... It took so long in part because, I mean, it's such a rich period of of cultural history. In the late 19th century, early 20th century, it's always fascinated me. It's sort of always been my home ground in kind of cultural terms. And so years went by where I was just kind of reading and rereading all this material. It was like a second college education in a sense, but through this weird lens, you know, the, the lens of Wagner, how people were reacting to the ever controversial uh, Wagner. So, so it, yeah, it became this sort of world I was living in. It just my office at home is just, you know, the shelves right next to my desk are full of the Wagner books and the Wagner adjacent books. And like when it's actually done, I can have to like... <laughs> Totally reorganize everything because my my study is just built around this project. So it's been this this little kind of landscape I've been I've been living in, and I've really enjoyed it. Actually, it's it's uh it's just so feels so good to slow way down and immerse yourself uh, in a subject like that. And I can't wait to read it because 
I mean, you're an extraordinary writer and you can make topics that I would, you know, if I just read it on face value may not seem that interesting to me, but I'm always like, wow, this is fascinating. I don't know how you do it. When you compared Wagner to, or Bob Dylan to Wagner, then I got a better understanding, <laughs> right? And that's what I love about your writing. You give me an associative context where I'm like, oh, you know, everything is contemporary to someone, and then it gives me an idea. So Wagner, is that, I don't know if people hate Bob Dylan as much as they might hate Wagner. <laughs> Probably not, no. Um, but no, thanks. I mean, that's that was, um, that piece that I wrote for the Naker website a couple of years ago was a little bit of a, provocation or, or just kind of like a, a obviously a, a weird association to make uh, in a lot of ways. Wagner, a major figure in, in classical music, uh, Bob Dylan uh, in popular music. Bob Dylan is Jewish. Wagner is a notorious anti-Semite. But what I saw in common was, first of all, they're, they're both writers of words and of music. And they both have a, a, a really powerful voice in both of those media to the point where what is really affecting us here? You know, is it the music or is it the words? And it kind of, it's kind of so bonded together that you can't even tell the, the difference uh, anymore. And Wagner wrote the librettos for all of his operas. And, and so he is a dramatist as well as a composer. And it has it's, it's it tripped a switch i think in in the late 19th century in the same way that that dylan tripped a switch in the 1960s where this work just imposed itself on people's consciousness it was just uh something that again you had to grapple with you had to come to terms with and for a whole generation you know they, you just you just had to be listening to bob dylan in the same way people who were you know coming of age around 1900 they they had to uh have some you know relationship with wagner and that's what fascinates me and so they jump out of the cultural sphere they become political both of them had strong political opinions at different stages uh, of their careers uh, to the point where you also can't separate the politics from the, the cultural aspect. And, and, and that's a really potent uh, combination. It's also kind of a, you can never get to the bottom of it, mm. you know, because also people are seeing themselves in figures like this and they're getting interpreted in, in so many different ways that the figures themselves lose control of what their work means, <laughs> which is also a really uh, interesting phenomenon. Uh, so when I talk about Wagner, he's, you know, he's being interpreted on the left, on the right, in all these different cultural fields. It's a global, it's an international phenomenon. And it was the same way with Dylan and other you know, major figures of the 60s in pop music. And as classical music has receded from people's consciousness, especially, you know, in the past 40 50 years, it's just not nearly as popular and mainstream as it used to be. Like Wagner is still completely front and center. He's still intensely controversial. He's not played in Israel because of uh, his anti-Semitic writings. Uh, you still hear him all the time in Hollywood movies. And like millions of people a year get married to the sound of Wagner, the, the wedding march from, from Lohengrin. Uh, so he's commanded, you know, center stage, you know, for better or worse. How do you explain someone like Wagner or many other figures, particularly in music, that with hindsight are maybe not as good as we'd like them to be, and they've done some maybe bad things or held mm -hmm. some controversial beliefs, you tend to be able to figure out how it's still important to listen and still appreciate to appreciate their work. Can you apply that to everyone else that's done something bad? Well, I think the interesting thing about Wagner is he has been 
questionable for so long. I mean, people have been debating whether Wagner is just too horrible a man for for us to to listen to his music since 1855 or so. <laughs> so it's been this long, long process of of people struggling with Wagner, battling over him. And some people have chosen to reject him altogether. And and I personally have no problem with that. You know, I love the music or I get a great deal out of the music, but I have total respect for someone who, who for whatever reason, whether they're uh, Jewish and, and uh, survived the Holocaust or, or whatever um, history they, they bring to it, uh, just can't listen to the music, you know, and, and, and so I, I have no, uh, I'm not going to attempt to argue with that. Um, for me, as, as a cultural historian, uh, rather than as sort of just a music lover, um, it's, <clears throat> it's fascinating. You know, it's, it's, it, that, that's exactly why this, this figure remains so interesting, the, the complexity of this great achievement on the one hand and this ugliness uh, on the other hand, and how different generations have kind of swayed back and forth in terms of dealing with him. And it almost becomes a model for how we deal with such troubling figures because it's been, people have been grappling with it for so long that there's just now this very rich history of, of, of people kind of figuring out ways to still present the music uh, without, you know, ignoring or sort of turning a blind eye to the ugliness of it. So if you look at productions of Wagner operas since 1945, um, there is a lot of consciousness of, you know, what, what does Wagner's connection with Nazi Germany mean? How should we, how should we deal with that? Can we present the operas in a way that, that brings out other elements in Wagner's makeup, his his youthful leftism, uh, his kind of proto-feminism in some ways, uh, you know, other more positive aspects of his worldview, uh, or, you know, can we stage these operas in a way that like really directly confronts the Nazi association and like puts that on stage and 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 sort of, you know, lets people, you know, try to deal with that. And and so so there's a great history of of, you know, yeah, how are we going to to uh, solve this problem with with Wagner? Which I think you know we can learn from as we you know look at all the other figures whose whose ugly past has come out. You know, some very recently. Right, right. <laughs> you know, you know one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is on this podcast we've had this deep dive into criticism into other parts of culture. I think most of the people that listen to this podcast are. Or cooks, although I know that there are many others um, mm-hmm. that from a variety of fields that listen to this. And as a whole, one of the things we've been trying to do is get a better understanding of the culinary profession, because I think as a whole, it's been looked down upon for so long. No one's ever really explored any associations that might have, or maybe there's other parts of culture that we can have a better understanding of if we just explore it. Uh, we've um, had Jerry Saltz on and Roberta Smith to understand art and food a little bit better, or just art criticism. Uh, we constantly look at sports to figure out how that might better uh, uh, give us better insights to the food world. And one of the things we've never done uh, is music criticism, because I knew we were going to have that, or just someone that understood music and culture as you've done. And uh, really, like you should read your book, The Rest is Noise, because that's what you do. You use sort of music as a vehicle to talk about how it's influenced culture in mm-hmm. every way possible, even if you don't realize it. And I don't know if food has that kind of impact, but 
I, I didn't put two and two together about like wanting to speak to you because I've always, you know, I'll be completely biased. I read your articles that are more about pop figures or Dylan or Bjork or something like that. Mm-hmm. My knowledge of classical music is incredibly, incredibly sad. So I, I, I want to know more, but it's one of those things like I need to go deeper in and maybe that's what I need to do. But when you wrote your article about three, four weeks ago in the New Yorker about Nietzsche, uh, uh, the Nietzsche's eternal return, what was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. And obviously because you're working on this book about Wagner, I was like, wow, I think you're doing what I hope to do with food in some way. Take something that has nothing to do with your core competency. Mm-hmm. And then you just explain Nietzsche in a way that I hadn't read anything as clear and lucid like that in a long time about a figure that's been incredibly well-written about um, with a lot of varying viewpoints. And I thought you gave a, I mean, I got to reread it again. <laughs> oh. It's a great, it's a great article if you know nothing about it or you are familiar a little bit about it. And I was like, man, maybe I could talk to Alex to get his insights mm-hmm. about music, about culture, um, as an art critic, to better understand the culinary profession, as strange as that might seem. Right. No, not at all. And first of all, thanks a lot. I mean, it's, it's so great to hear. And, you know, my whole mission, uh, starting out as a critic, has been to find these kinds of connections from this world that does feel very remote uh, to a lot of people. You know, maybe they played an instrument when they were in school, they went to a young people's concert, you know, uh, uh, at an orchestra when they were in school, uh, but, you know, otherwise have had just this very glancing uh, relationship with it. But, you know, when I've written about, when I've written about Björk and uh, Radiohead, which are two of the big pop music uh, profiles I've done, I was attracted to them not just because I love their music, but because I I knew that they had strong relationships with classical music. You know, Björk grew up playing the flute, and she listens to a lot of of 20th century and contemporary classical music. Same thing with the guys in uh, Radiohead and and Johnny Greenwood. Uh, the lead guitarist has a flourishing career now as a composer, you know, in his own right. Um, and so, I mean. I can't really tell the difference. I mean, that's probably part of why I I love their music, you know, because I, I hear those connections in the work. You, you can sort of hear it. But also, as a writer, it's a great opportunity for me to grab people's attention who don't ordinarily care about classical music and say, hey, look, you know, this music you love has a relationship with Olivier Messiaen's music or John Cage, Arvo Pert, various other figures, and, and sort of just kind of open a little door uh, in people's minds. And so it's it's kind of been my secret agenda. <laughs> yeah, no, it, you've been along. successful because I never thought about, I was like, oh yeah, Day in the Life, that's been influenced by, you know, modern classical music. I was yeah, like, oh, absolutely. I guess it does yeah. sound that way. <laughs> and it just sounds good to me or Talking Heads or Brian, you know, I'm like, yeah, these are all artists that I really like. Maybe I should study the things that have influenced them too. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I can see that the the situation with cuisine, you know, and cuisine being something that people take for granted. Obviously, everyone eats, but they don't necessarily think about it. They don't think about how the practice of of how this really is an art form and and how it's been developing over the centuries and and the the connections that it has to, you know, neighboring art forms. People just take take it for granted, and that's the way it used to be with music. Back, I would say in the the 18th century, Music was was constantly all around. It was being played, but it was sort of considered background. You know, in fact, 
Bach would lead performances of his works in a coffeehouse uh, in in Leipzig, and you know wealthy aristocrats would hire musicians to play during dinner, and this was often great music. You know, works that are now considered uh, classics uh, were basically uh, accompanying you know uh, so it was the original meals. Rest- original <laughs> restaurant music, absolutely, and and it wasn't really written about that much. It wasn't it wasn't sort of uh, taken seriously uh, as an art form, despite the fact that you had some of the most monstrously great figures in, in musical history, uh, uh, Bach and and everyone else uh, working in that in that period. You actually there's a sort of deficit of real. Criticism, criticism as an art form in music, really only gets going in the 19th century uh, when there's this this bigger kind of mass public, uh, especially middle class uh, public for the music. So that's when you start seeing that that critical record, and that that sort of syndrome repeats itself with pop music. You know, early on, early 20th century, mid 20th century, people weren't taking. Uh, Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington seriously at first. They, were, they weren't being written about. It was entertainment, you know. Uh, same thing with early rock bands. And, and so only after a little time does it sink in that, oh, this, this is actually uh, a very important uh, part of cultural history. And, and so that delay, I think, is, is really significant. And it's interesting when an art form sort of takes that turn, <laughs> when people really start to take it seriously. Do you feel that that's still the role of a critic then is to shed light on something that the audience may not realize or understand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've never considered myself the kind of critic who just delivers an evaluation, you know, uh, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, was, was that orchestra in tune? Was the soprano flat? You know, uh, did they, did they take the tempo too fast in the second movement? You know, I, I do that in, in my, writing but i consider it somewhat secondary you know it's it's an essential ingredient but but the main drive of my pieces is always to look at the bigger picture you know how did this performance how does the work of this composer relate to the world we live in and and you know what is it really telling us and and so it's it's a kind of writing that is somewhere between journalism and and sort of subjective Kind of personal impressions, and and I I'm sort of working on a few different tracks uh, right. simultaneously in, in each of the pieces. I really appreciate again your criticism, and that's something I hope that food critics can take a couple ideas from because it feels to me when you write about music, even if it's music that a lot of people are unfamiliar with or it's esoteric, is you're fighting for openness, right? Mm-hmm. You want people to have sort of a fresh set of eyes as to how they might look at something, or there might be a um, misperception about someone. And I think you're provided a template as to how food <laughs> critics can follow because you are digging in the past right. and present. So I, no, I find I'm, it fascinating. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I know there are a lot of great food critics out there as well. No, 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 I, I'm not saying they're not great. <laughs> but like, I know that there's a sense of people are trying to figure out what you're doing right mm-hmm. now with how do we look at foods that we've misinterpreted right. or just completely missed altogether. Or, you know, Something that I, I look at, like the, these uh, urban myths that come out, like MSG, something that I'm an advocate on, it's just mm-hmm. totally wrong. There's no information whatsoever that supports the Chinese myth uh, that MSG is bad for you. Or recently, uh, I read an article about the chef Rocco Despirito, who 
uh, has been now known as the guy on Dancing with the Stars and had the NBC show The Restaurant. When I read your review, I was like, oh, this." Th- th- I read this review by Kat Kinsman in Food and Wine, and, and it reminded me about your Salieri article. Mm-hmm. And the chef who was the hot, young, up-and-coming, uh, next-generational talent for America is now um, seen as this almost tragic figure. And those that were in the industry knew otherwise. Yes, mm-hmm. it was sad that he decided to, you know, shoot the moon, and and it's like almost this Icarus-like, you know, play, tragedy. But mm-hmm. if you dig a little bit deeper into why and how the chef lived his life, it's not nearly fun to talk about it. It's, right. it's not easy to make fun of, I should say. Right. Yeah. And I feel that there's a sense of humanity that has not been the case in covering chefs and, and food figures that you are doing in music. In the food world, at least in the high-end food world, uh, there's a, a topic that maybe the next great chef uh, doesn't exist anymore, that the, mm-hmm. the, the genius celebrity chef, that era is over. And I don't know if we're asking the right questions. You sort of touched upon this when you wrote your uh, article on Leonard Bernstein mm-hmm. um, and the problem with sort of celebrating this this one figure that mm-hmm. that it doesn't what what is the problem by just creating this one mythic figure that no one else can sort of replicate well I mean he is such an incredible phenomenon unto himself it's sort to generalize like right. there's only one Bernstein and there's not going to be another one um I um I met him when I was a kid uh which was an incredible experience uh, uh I went to school in DC as, as you did you were in all those <laughs> yeah and and the better the better high school in the Washington well. <laughs> area I could not get in <laughs> So that can be definitely debated, but um, <laughs> for uh, sure it is great education there. I have to say that. Um, but so the school's on the campus of National Cathedral, and Bernstein came uh, to conduct uh, Mahler's Second Symphony, um, and I got in there and watched him rehearse, which is just you know incredible to see him just like shouting at the percussion section louder, <laughs> um, and just met him, you know, shook his hand. Um, and yeah, there was this force that emanated from him, even in the sort of like 20 seconds that I uh, spent in his presence. Um, I think the problem with Bernstein, there were ugly aspects uh, to his uh, personality, especially in, in uh, later years. Um, and uh, his consumption of alcohol and other substances and, and the, sounds the like personality. reading a chef about a chef <laughs> yeah there are there are issues there that, that have been coming up but but in terms of the, the the bigger historical picture you know when you put someone on a pedestal like that when you we, you we sort of bet everything on Leonard Bernstein you know he was just the savior of classical music and he was on Broadway and he was conducting and he was you know creating these pieces and and it created this precedent, which was just impossible for, for anyone to compete against. And so for years and years, it's kind of died down now, but people would always be asking, like, who's the next Bernstein? You know, are you the next Bernstein? No, you're not the next Bernstein. And like, it would just go on and on. And and so that that kind of, you know, deification is just going to be problematic in the, in the long term. And yeah, I think we're, we're in a situation now in music and I think a lot of other cultural forms that... Why do we do this? Is it just an American <laughs> sensibility or is it a global thing? Oh, it's a global thing. I mean, like in, in Europe, in classical music, the stakes are bigger and, and these people are, are glorif- glorified to uh, an even greater extent. And of course, this is where 
this culture came from in terms of you know European, uh, the Western European uh, classical tradition. Um, so it's a it's a human habit, I think. And we're looking for that leader, that savior uh, who will you know lead us upward, and then you know they can't fulfill our expectations and then you know we turn against them and like this is tribal kind of tribal mechanism it's in all the old myths you know the the, the king who's raised up and and torn down and and um but i think in a lot of the art forms i think in architecture you know people have been talking about the end of the star architect the 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 star celebrity genius architect and in 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 music and new music people are are looking past this sensibility where you know there's only a few people who really uh matter whether in composition or performance and and i think that's that's healthy but there's also something it is this elemental need you know with the people People go to concerts. They go look at buildings. They, they, they go to great restaurants. Uh, they go to museums in order to be overpowered. You know, they they want something exceptional. They want something awesome. Uh, and the the whole culture that is built up, you know, around creating and providing and and sort of also marketing that kind of experience, it brings up all these pitfalls automatically. But we still we still want it, you know. We still need it. So you know, can we have a future where, where we have, quote unquote, geniuses who who are providing these kinds of experiences, and yet they're all kind of really nice people and treating people well? It's like it's tricky, you know. Um, so it's but it, it is a kind of working through of of that quote unquote genius model that that it seems like every art form is actually dealing with this right now um absolutely in the food yeah. world too <laughs> yeah 100 percent um as a question not to, to to be so reductive to a food critic but i'm always asking myself just to better understand my industry again because i have restaurants that get reviewed by critics so i want to know how a food critic thinks want to read their work and all of these things to get a better understanding of what they might think of our food. What does it take to be a good music critic then? Because it seems to me this is the one kind of criticism where if you're not constantly reading, listening, getting better, um, it's not going to look so good. <laughs> like you must be just consuming information all the time. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I mean, it's you do need to keep up. Um, there are some basic qualities that I think you need to have to 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 do it. I mean, there's no there's no exact training, you know, and you don't need to have you know a certain certain kind of degree, you know, to to do it at a certain sort of level of of professional. Do you training. mean perfect pitch? No, oh, definitely not. Um, I don't have perfect pitch, and you, you don't need to be a, a you can be a great musician without having perfect pitch. It's 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 uh it's, it's not a, a necessity at all. Um, but you need some level of musical training. Like every critic I know has played an instrument. And you played. Um, I played uh, the piano and the oboe uh, quite poorly. But uh, but my main thing actually was I wanted to be a composer. Uh, so up until age eighteen, I was writing these pieces. That what were, made that you were, stop? It was just a kind of dawning awareness that, um, you know, I, I wasn't even going to be Salieri. <laughs> I would be lucky if I if I got to be Salieri. Um, yeah, I just didn't have the, actually, I didn't have the drive to do it. I would have ideas. I would write like a little kind of melody down or sketch out a texture. And then it just wouldn't go anywhere, you know, and I wouldn't be able to think of what 
well, what comes next? And I didn't have this, this drive to, to just kind of really dig into it and like just obsess over it uh, and kind of figure out where I was going. And the odd thing is, that's exactly the quality that I have for writing. <laughs> and I don't know why my brain is like just kind of vague in this one area and like sort of much different in, in the neighboring area. But with writing, I, <clears throat> I completely love... I don't know if love is the right word. I, I I just kind of end up, you know, getting swept up in this process of of you know sort of putting the initial sketch on on the page and then just just hour after hour, day after day, kind of moving things around and reworking it until it's you know the way I want. And and so that <clears throat> I just didn't have that kind of uh, obsessiveness when it came to music. And you know I just love to listen and and read about it more than. And I wanted to uh, create it, and I just loved the history and the biography and the, the backgrounds. But you're too. listening to everything too, it seems. Well, I can't listen. Well, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll like I mean, in terms I, of genres, I, you're not just listening to classical music and. Yeah, it's as I've gotten older, uh, sort of moving into my 50s now, I find it really hard to keep up with what's going on in pop music. It's like I'm a couple of generations behind now. I sort of keep up with my old favorites, um, but uh, it's just sort of overwhelming. You know, so I, I think 20 years ago, I was just a lot more plugged into what was going on in pop music. And now it's, um, but there's also just so much going on in terms of there's so much, it feels like there's more to listen to. Does it uh, mean it's better? No, not necessarily, but there's just more, I mean, in classical music, there's just like, now there's streaming, there's like a live concert happening in Australia, you know, which I can listen to on the internet, you know, uh, uh, radio stations, uh, you know, orchestras filming their own concerts and putting them on the internet. And, and so I just, I'm, I, I'm just getting a fraction of it, you know, mm -hmm. so I just try all day long. I'm just, there's always music playing, I'm always you know, uh, here's a name I don't know. Let me go explore, you know, this person's work. And, and so, you know, there's that kind of basic kind of training or background that you have to get interested in it at first. And then there's this constant just keeping up, you know. You're an advocate for modern classical music. Mm -hmm. um, with my, again, limited understanding, it, it always sounds something that I don't know if I could just sit down and listen to. Mm-hmm. And the way I feel people that are aficionados and fans of classical music of all genres, they, they tend to talk about it in a way that I can talk about food that can be ostracizing to people. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> or just bewildering. Yeah. It's like, what like, why? Why is it so important <laughs> to you? And when you try to explain the, the virtues and the brilliance of modern music, I tend to feel the same way about modern gastronomy, where it's not for everyone. Right. But you have to appreciate the brilliance. Like, you have to see what they're trying to do. Right. And I feel that's the best way that I can understand what you're trying to say. It's like, it's not supposed to be delicious. <laughs> you know, it might be if you understand 16 different reasons why this dish was created. Right. But you need to have some knowledge beforehand but there's so many dishes right now in this 2019 that we're just coming out of this modern movement right that we're in a place now i don't know if anyone knows what kind of food we're making anymore it's just this right complete limbo is that sort of where music is at right now and classically yeah and of course like you know as 
someone who goes to restaurants, I'm on the other side of it. Like I'm a, I'm a, a philistine. I'm you know I, I'm not kind of well versed you know in in all of the latest trends. So you know I may just have a dish where I was like, it's like you know. <laughs> I don't know what that was about, and uh, and I'm aware that 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 it's you know it might be you know very sophisticated and and um, worthy of attention. So it's funny how you know you can just end up on different sides of that divide between the you know the connoisseur and just like the the regular person. Um, you know, for me, I know it's a tough sell. You know, and it's a tough sell within classical music. Never mind, kind of all the other people out there. There are a lot of people who grew up with. You know Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, um, maybe Mahler at the tail end, um, who love that music and have a huge problem with everything that came after that. My parents uh, were like that. I mean, they they grew up, you know, taking me to chamber music concerts around uh, DC, and you know, this was the music they they really loved, and you know, to this day, they kind of scratch their heads over the stuff that I write about. What do you think causes that? That moment where you're just like, I'm not going to appreciate anything after this point in time. Because you see that in food and sports and basically everything. Yeah, people do get locked down. I mean, I mean, it happens in pop music where people kind of stop taking in new music after, you know, their their youth, you know. And so kind of everything that happens after that is, you know, doesn't make much sense to them. Um, um, of course, in this case, people are... You know, all this happened long before they were born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, Brahms was the music they grew up with, you know. And uh, and so it's a deeper problem, which you know, partly has to do with, with, you know, I think we are conditioned to, to you know, just our, our, our culture has conditioned us to treat certain sounds as, as normal, you know, and, and there's certain harmonies, uh, tonal uh, harmonies, which we've just all kind of grown up in a culture that, that <clears throat> makes them seem normal. Um, uh, you know, when you go around the world, you find very different uh, ways of, of tuning uh, music uh, and different scales uh, in uh, South Asian and in uh, East Asian uh, traditions, it it sounds quite different. So there is no universal. I'm I'm really opposed to the idea that there's some absolute global universal standard People that's would argue. natural, you know, uh, and that this is just the way it has to be. I think that's that's really problematic. I th- that's you know that's not what art is about. You know, we don't want one kind of universal form of music any more than we want like a single language and a single religion. You know, we want diversity and different traditions and different voices, and it should be the same way in music. So like what you said about that attitude with modern cuisine is just be aware of this. You know, this is this is happening and you may not immediately grasp it, but you have the sense this is important. This is part of the, the creative field. I mean, that's the attitude that I want to have in music as well, where, you know, you don't have to love it, but at least give it a chance and kind of be aware that there's, you know, something valuable and, and like it's sincere. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of the Day Chang Show is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to barbecue from the best in the world, I think, Aaron Franklin. You can learn how to cook French food from Thomas Keller or how to make sort of British fare from Gordon Ramsay or California cuisine from Alice Waters. 
with over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there's literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV, and each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. The all-access pass membership charged annually gives you unlimited access to over 60 classes and 200 hours of lessons taught by the world's best. I even saw you can learn how to negotiate from the world's best hostage negotiator. I just saw Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, give his lessons in leadership. Loved it very much. I can't recommend it enough. It's a great gift, but also it's a wonderful way to sort of broaden your knowledge base in all kinds of fields. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's masterclass.com slash Chang for 15% off masterclass. And now, back to the show. You think there's a problem in being stuck in nostalgia versus appreciating what's happened in the past. And that is a very dangerous place to be. It is. Yeah, nostalgia is dangerous. You but know? no one ever thinks of nostalgia as dangerous. They were like, oh, it's so lovely. Well, there's, I think, yeah, there's there's <laughs> healthy nostalgia, you know, and like, oh, here's where I used to go to school and it looks different now. And, you know, um, but cultural nostalgia can very easily feed into nationalism. You know, Can you give some examples for those that may not know the history? <laughs> well, um, you know, uh, when, you know, in, in Nazi Germany, uh, when Wagner and, and Beethoven uh, and Brahms were, were cast as these purely German, you know, Aryan uh, composers, it was a way of excluding uh, uh, modern uh, composers uh, who were Jewish or who may have had, you know, leftist uh, political affiliations. It, it, it created this 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 barrier, um, and you know, everyone before you know a certain point in time fits the profile of 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 what, of what they want, you know, a, a creative genius to look like, and 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 people who come after are are you know rejected. I think nostalgia. Uh, it, it can feed into this idea of a, of a more homogeneous homeland, you know, where everyone looked alike and, and everyone sort of shared the same tastes and, and, and wasn't it wonderful? And, and it, it sort of can push against the much more varied uh, uh, world in which we live, in which people are moving around the world much more fluidly. And, and so traditions are, are having to really it coexist uh, side by side uh, all over the world. And people can be very uncomfortable with that and nostalgia becomes a weapon to exclude them. And again, I, I see this in food all the time when people right. say, I only like this cuisine. I don't want to eat anything else. Um, that's fine, but that's also scary, very, very scary <laughs> to me. Right. Um, that nothing else is valid other than the food that you like. Right. Um, and I, I, I'd like your opinion on this because I think about this a lot, a lot. Uh, Chris Young's here, and he knows that I think about this a lot. But I want to understand better why individuals might be more open to something in culture, say music or art or literature, that they may not normally. Is that they're not only they have a sense of openness, but I feel that majority of people don't have that sense of openness that you try to write about so much and promote. It's not like they don't want to. I feel like they're so afraid of change. They're so afraid of, I think, the suffering that comes along with being in an uncomfortable place. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I thrive off that personally. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to get more people to get off that plateau or they feel that that's where they should be is a place that's easy and acceptable and comforting. I don't think that's the case, which uh, like we'll get to, I want to get to in a little bit was why I was so enamored with your article about Nietzsche, which is like the more the Dionysian element of how he viewed life should be in terms of some balance with the Ap- Apollonian. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of my my personal take is how do how do we get people to get out of their comfort zone? And right. I can only do that with food. And I personally am always trying that too. But I'd love your take as to why that happens to always be the case, particularly with music. Is something that you've covered and are, mm-hmm. I'd say, an expert on. Yeah, I mean, with music, with food, probably with every other art form, people tend to use uh, these, these worlds as a kind of refuge. You know, And I think... You know, a lot of it has to do with just the pace and the intensity and the the density of the lives we live now and how just, you know, from hour to hour, you know, during our waking life, um, there's this jarring overload of information and there's just very rapid change in terms of just the technologies we need to use and the fears that go along with, you know, these technologies in the sense that everyone is is exposed and uncertain. And so art uh, culture becomes ever more this place that, that you go back to that's familiar. You know, we're going to go out to that nice restaurant we love and it's going to be the same food and and you know we're going to enjoy that we'll go to the orchestra and we'll hear some wonderful beethoven you know or we'll go to the rolling stones show and and you know just still be playing the music pretty much <laughs> the same way they have for like you know <laughs> a century um and and that is a, it becomes a, a counterbalancing to the sort of chaos and intensity of, uh, of of their daily lives, and so, and you know, I'm sympathetic to that. You know, I mean, I realize why people have those needs, and and how at the end of the day, you know, when they go to a concert, they just might not be quite in the position to to deal with someone's kind of shriekingly atonal oratorio based on you know the predicament of Syrian refugees, you know, and like that just might be too much for them to handle, you know, at uh, at <clears throat> 8 p.m. after they've parked would you the see- car <laughs> and, you know, done all this. It's like they want, to, they want to relax, you know. But, you know, I understand that, but you can't, you can't have a healthy art form, you know, if that's, if that's the main, the main uh, kind of impetus is just to kind of let people kick back. You Do know? you have that balance in music right now where it is? Comfort, nostalgia, and something that's out of that? Uh, it can happen. It's always tricky, you know, because there's some portion of the audience that that actually wants that. You know, they they don't want to hear the umpteenth performance of, of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. They they want to hear the the new thing, and they want music. They might actually not even be interested in coming to the concert unless there is a contemporary composer. Um, uh, you know, perhaps one who's not a white male, you know, who is grappling with with some, you know, significant uh, political issue. Uh, and and it becomes a, you know, it's you, you have this audience that just is made up of people with very different needs and very different interests. So it's, it's very tricky to balance uh, all of them. I think in some places we, we have achieved the good balance. And um, to praise the local orchestra again, the LA Philharmonic uh, has found, I think, a really good 
mixture of the new and the old. Uh, they heavily promote contemporary composers, uh, often quite daring ones, uh, but you can also find all the Beethoven and Tchaikovsky that you want. What makes a daring modern composer? Well, you know, um, it's not daring anymore, I think, to be atonal, to, to have, you know, harmonies that, that are very dissonant and, and kind of uh, assaultive. Uh, I, I actually enjoy that kind of music, but it's been around for a long time, and there's been a century now of people kind of working in that idiom. So to be daring these days, I think, probably has more to do with subject matter or with just creating you know, bringing different elements into the piece, uh, whether it's electronics or, or non-Western, uh, musical traditions or, or a text, you know, that's, that's very of the moment, sort of anything that just departs from, from the template, you know, that, that is, uh, considered acceptable, you know, for, for the generation that came before you, you know, so that, that urge to, to innovate and to stretch the boundaries is still very much alive and well. When you listen to, um, let's just say, Country X that has beautiful music, but you've never heard it before, and it sounds not so nice to you on the first, you know, mm-hmm. handful of times, mm-hmm. how do you judge that, right, from what would be American Eurocentric understanding of music, even though you have, I'm sure, an incredible global understanding? Because I'm trying to better understand things. Like, it's an album that I always think about these things when I taste a dish, where I'm like, I don't know if I like that. Mm-hmm. But then, like, Five years later, I was like, that was the best dish I've right. ever had. Yeah. What, how do you do that as a critic? Because I've, what may be seen as a weakness as to something that you don't have an expert knowledge on allows you to have a different perspective. Is that a weakness that you don't know everything? No, no, I mean, you can't, you know, no one can know everything, you know, it's, it's impossible to begin with, but, but I think actually to step outside of your comfort zone, uh, and expose yourself to something that, that you're really quite uncertain about in terms of the technique of it, you know, as well as your ability to appreciate it is, is so important, you know, because, you know, even if there are shaky moments where you're trying to talk about it and you're not really sure that <laughs> you know what you're saying, um, you know, as you said, it can be the beginning of of a really rich relationship. Um, and I, I'm so fascinated by that moment that you just described where, you know, the first time you hear something, you taste something and you don't get it. And, but there's something in the back of your head that like, and yet, you know, there's something here. I'm not, you don't, you don't reject it. You know, you're like, when's the last time you had that moment with something um, you heard? Huh, let me think. Um, um, cause I love these moments of my right. life. Right. Um, well, it's just, I just, I just heard this this piece that I'm sort of grappling with, uh, writing about right now in, in New York, uh, called Zauberland, which took Schumann's great song cycle, Dichterliebe, and mixed in contemporary work, uh, contemporary music. And, and actually the, they did try to turn it into a story about a, a Syrian refugee, a singer who, who goes to Germany. And my first impulse was it didn't work at all, but, but that sort of, I've been thinking back on it and realizing how, you know, sometimes what seems not to work is just departing from the the template. You know that that you're familiar with, and and so you you sort of try to go back and and you know I can't rehear it. Right. <laughs> you know, I had that one chance, but but I kind of try to relive it in my head and try to see if well, is there another take that I can find on this? Because that that state of mind is, you know, so this, so then like you said, like five years later, you're completely in love with 
this dish, you know, this, this work. It's become like the most important thing to you in the world. And you think back and like, what was going on in my head? You know, that, that first time, you know, why didn't I get it? When I first heard Bob Dylan for years, actually, my roommates in college would be playing Bob Dylan. I was like, you know, that's (laughs) old hippie guy kind of, you know, squawking away. And then this moment came in, uh, a few years out of college and I was in Berlin actually, and I was staying alone in an apartment. Uh, my <clears throat> friend whose apartment I was borrowing just had like five CDs and I was desperate for something to listen to. And one of them was Highway 61 Revisited and I put it on. And the first time I was like, eh, it's kind of, eh, it's kind of interesting. And then, then I listened again and like, seriously, by the end of that day or like two days later, I listened to the thing like 20 times <laughs> and I was like starting to memorize the lyrics and I just, I became obsessed in an instant, you know? So, so there was some kind of vulnerability that I had, maybe just because I was in a different you know, country and a bit lonely, and I just sort of opened myself to this experience. Um, so you've got to be, you've got to let yourself, as a professionally, as a critic, kind of, you know, encourage yourself to have those kinds of experiences. So humil- humility. Yeah, and just rethinking, you know, go back to think again, like, let me try again, you know, just don't sort of have the snap judgment and then move on and forget about it, you know. So I'm constantly revisiting things. And I've learned from experience that there's a certain state of mind where I'm puzzled. I kind of didn't like it all that much, or I had a lot of trouble with it, and yet something pulls me back. Like, that's a sign that this this could be something really important. Like mm. this, you know, because because when it, when it sort of, when you have that push and pull kind of happening in you, that can very often be just the power of this new idea fighting against your unfamiliarity and, and and your resistance to just what's what's different about it and when you get past the unfamiliarity suddenly you know this is the greatest thing ever you know and so i i, I love those experiences you know because it's not always love at first sight what happens in criticism uh, when someone files a review when they're still in a mode where they're like i hate this because <laughs> it happens right yeah, um, it happens in food all the time. Yeah, um, you know, I've written, I've written reviews where I was just kind of just having a fit, you know, <laughs> when I when I saw something, uh, when I saw the the last um, new uh, Wagner Ring cycle uh, at the Met, um, and I really, really didn't like it. And I and I wrote this this review where it kind of flew off the handle, and it's become widely quoted. It's like kind of one of the most <laughs> widely quoted things I've written, uh, you know. And um, and you know, it's not that I'm ashamed of it. Um, I went back and saw the, the the production again last year, and I didn't hate it as much. I still had lots of problems with it. Uh, they'd also made some improvements and kind of ironed out some difficulties, you know. But it was it was it was honestly what I was feeling at the time, and and that's really all I can do, you know, I, if a critic, you know, rejects those, those raw visceral immediate impressions and instead starts trying to write, well, this is kind of what I should be feeling or, or kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of fantasizing some kind of, I mean, you've just got to go with the, the, the raw data, you know, in, inside of you, you can, you can tone it down, <laughs> you know, you can, and the same goes for positive reviews because I've written wildly positive reviews that like years mm. later, I'm like, eh, <laughs> that wasn't quite that great. Um, you know, so, 
so you can i don't know it's not like you it's not like you damp it down so that it just becomes very cautious and neutral because that's also no one wants that you know but the trick is to somehow have it in your own voice enough that it is this is it comes across that this is the expression of a individual you know like one living breathing person having this subjective impression and even if it's very strongly worded there's kind of like quotation marks around it i'm always so fascinated by that element of critic and the reader particularly in all the arts that are not food Mm -hmm. because food is so uh, transient in the moment literally will be in a toilet in eight nine hours Mm -hmm. And what you taste as a critic will not be tasted by anyone else. Right. So that's why they go three or four times. But as someone that follows uh, a, a music critic or a movie critic, I it's I have an ability as like a baseline to like disagree or agree. And that's the one thing about food that I don't know if I can never explain. It's the it, it's what makes food criticism great and terrible simultaneously. Right. Well, music is closer though. To, to that kind of transient experience than film or literature. Because the movie is fixed. The book is fixed. You know, people will have different impressions of it, very different takes on it, but the text itself is literally black and white. With uh, And the same goes for pop music, you know, when someone records an album, that's that. You know, it's fixed uh, forever. Uh, with classical music performance, it, it will vary from night to night. You know, uh, opera, you know, opera singers are operating some very tricky machinery in terms of, you know, the human voice, and it can go up and down, you know, from night to night. And one night, it it will be brilliant, and the other next night, they'll have a little disaster. And and so, so, and then it is, most of the time, it's gone. You know, now more and more stuff gets recorded on the internet and there's a stream and that's archived, whatever. But but the average concert just does go away, you know, at 10 p.m. That's that. And and so that that is a really interesting challenge because your reader, if if he or she wasn't there, mm. um can't have exactly the same uh experience. Um and so you are what are you doing? You know, you're not, it's not consumer kind of consumer reports like, you know, should you buy this product or not? <laughs> um, because the product is gone. It was just that one night, you know. But of course, you know, they might want to go to a later performance of this opera. They might want to see this pianist, you know, the next time uh, uh, she comes to town. And, and so that, um, so there, it's, it's, a, it's a more general kind of uh, form of, of, you know, speaking to the quote-unquote consumer, but but it, that is a fascinating element of it. And are you writing for the consumer to drive sales sometimes, <laughs> or is it doesn't no. really have any bearing? Because I wonder about that now with, again, any kind of criticism where everyone has access to sort of something. Mm-hmm. You're now sort of trusting your opinion as a like a tastemaker almost. Right. right. Well, yeah, I don't, I've never... I mean, you can't have influence. There's, there's no doubt. Um, the best kind of influence that I can have is drawing attention to someone people don't know about right. yet, and saying, you know, this 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 person is actually really special, and and that's that's a great feeling, you know, where you feel that you've you've helped to to sort of bring someone uh, to the surface. Um, but most of the time, you know, when I'm writing about Gustavo Dudamel or the pianist Long Long. Um, 
you know, they're, they're, they're famous. They're going to sell out, you know, concerts and, and it's, you know, just really not going to have too much of an effect one way or another, you know, what, what I say. Um, but that's not that I don't think that's my job mm. at all. You know, it's not to, to decide people whether or not to, you know, you know, buy a CD or go to a concert. I always think that I'm leading a conversation, helping to lead a conversation about the art form, you know, and, and just kind of throwing some ideas out there that, that people can take into account and, and, you know, in their own kind of private conversations or, or, you know, other critics may reply and, and sort of come into conversation with what, what I do. It's, it's about, it's about giving people a, a vocabulary, you know, uh, and, and just kind of supplying some, throwing some ideas into the mix, um, which is, you know, in music, and this may be the same way with food, everyone has an opinion. They have very strong impressions and may not know how to articulate it, mm. you know? Um, and, and so, uh, that's me. <laughs> yeah, but with food, I'm like that tasted kind of mm, little salty, or you know, it's like yeah, I, I don't have, I just don't have that vocabulary ready to hand, and and so so people, ha you know, it's just great to have every art form needs to have this this zone of discussion and conversation and debate, you know, uh, around it because it, it it helps to keep it alive and and fresh and you know jar it out of out of the old repeating patterns. Um. Before I get you out of here, uh, I wanted to talk about your article you wrote on, on Nietzsche again, mm -hmm. and again, how it references Wagner, but more specifically, you touch upon how ever since, uh, you know, even before he died, but he is now, seems, he's never unpopular, right? right? And yeah. more so now than ever before. Mm -hmm. And I... I I've been reading a lot more Nietzsche because while I read him in college, it was interesting to me for the same reason. I think a lot of college kids find him interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but now I see it in a very different way. And I keep on going back to a lot of his works uh, and taking different insights. And I remember reading The Birth of Tragedy in college being like, this is this is horrible. I don't, I don't like any <laughs> of it. Now I see it as a, maybe this is, the problem we have right now, or we've mm -hmm. just eliminated a lot of the suffering that life is important to sort of memorialize around. And we just want the easy and the rational. Mm -hmm. I see this in food all the time. Right. And I think it's incredibly problematic. And I have a couple questions. Is it problematic to use Nietzsche as sort of a reference point because he has a lot of controversial viewpoints, but misunderstood viewpoints too, which you talk about, which a lot of people may not even know about his sister and not going on into mm -hmm. his life. But is it even, does it even work like his philosophy, right? Because there's so many viewpoints he has, oftentimes contradictory. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, yeah, of course, of course, he's valid as a as a reference point. I mean, he's he's part of our cultural history. You know, uh, he's a huge figure, um, and and he also occupies this interesting position, which is sort of somewhere between philosophy and literature. You know, so he's never you can never pin him down. You know, and 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 so he comes out with these you know drastic sounding statements: God is dead, and, and so on. And yet, and yet, there's always a 
contradiction or there's always kind of a qualification and he sort of spins it this way or that and and moves it much more into the kind of realm that we associate with literature where where we're being sort of taken into a world imaginary world of of living breathing human beings interacting and and kind of having this life with them uh and the ups and downs uh and you know first the character is very appealing and then you, then something ugly happens and you're repulsed and and Nietzsche's writing i think has that same kind of fluidity you know everything is in flux you know and that's why it's so powerful in terms of applying to our own lives because he he sort of gives you these measuring sticks and these these kind of these lenses uh, through which to see that kind of flux and constant change and contradictoriness um, in a way that it just seems to make more sense. I mean, it's just you know, it it it, it it's 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 about kind of um, mapping, you know, mapping this incredibly complex world and 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 sort of finding a path through it. And that's what what I think he's so brilliant at. Um, so you know, in terms of the you know, there there is. Ugliness in Nietzsche. There's misogyny. There's this this cult of power, force, um, and uh, that was taken up by the Nazis and and is being taken up, unfortunately, by a lot of alt right and neo Nazi and white supremacist people today. Uh, it's it's dangerous vocabulary to play around with. Um, uh, Power and the Superman and the, the 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 individual who who can somehow you know master uh, the the world around them, uh, but that's only a part of what mm. of what he's about. And I think you know the the Superman is this strange literary character where in the end you're like who what is this person? It's extremely uh, uh, elusive as to like what what is he talking about? You know, and ultimately it does come back to. You know, one of the most appealing things about him, which I talk about in the piece, is this idea that that although Nietzsche had this apparent cult of power, he never wanted any one entity or or person or force to become predominant. Um, and and for him, it was a disaster if if a single state or or a single ruler, you know, acquires ultimate power. So the power that he was seeking was to counteract. The powers that are already out there, and he valued this this perpetual antagonism. Everything was always a struggle, uh, a battle, uh, and I think it really comes out of his relationship with Wagner, because Wagner was this overpowering figure, hugely famous in his own time, and Nietzsche became very close to him for a little while, and he was kind of Wagner's flunky, uh, and he was running around and you know uh, picking up you know caramel. Chocolates uh, from somewhere for for Ricard and Cosmo Wagner. Uh, uh, Wagner had a bit of a thing for these silk undergarments uh, that he liked to drape around his person. So so <laughs> Nietzsche would have to go pick those up somewhere. And and you know after after a while he rebelled violently against that. Uh, but he what he rebelled against was was just the the degree to which everyone he loved Wagner when Wagner was an underdog uh, and then. In 1876, when Wagner's Ring was first performed at Bayreuth, Wagner suddenly became this this great national symbol, you know, of of resurrected Germany, um, and 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 that was 
too much for Nietzsche. And, and so he wanted to become Wagner's great antagonist and, and sort of go to battle with, with Wagner while still loving his music all the time. He never, he was very complicated. He never fell out of love with the music. And, and I, uh, that's, that's a healthy picture for, for a contemporary society, I think, where, where no one element becomes, you know, supreme and, and there's a kind of, uh, balance uh, and attention between all these elements. And, and I don't think Nietzsche would be particularly fond of the society we live in now, where, where there are a few corporations that have incredible power, where, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of giving our lives over to, to these, you know, devices that, that uh, c- you know, control so many aspects of our lives. And, and it's a very unequal society uh, in so many ways. Uh, and so I think he would be all for pushing it back, <laughs> pushing back against those powers that, that be. And, and uh, but, you know, every art, f- every great work of art can be misused, no matter how pure and beautiful it seems. Uh, it can be distorted. It can be made ugly. Um, there's, um, what did Bob Dylan say? Be- behind every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. Uh, and I think you can say, uh, behind every beautiful thing, there's been, there's been something ugly. Uh, there's, there's, there's a crime. There's, 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 uh, oppression. You know, so much of our great art has, has some very ugly history behind it. Uh, and, and this is, this is the, the price we pay, I think, for, for, for having this art at all, it can never be pure. Uh, we have to accept that there's that there's there's a kind of shadow always hanging over it, um, and that's just the complexity of life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's being human. We're we're a species that has some very wonderful and some very horrifying and terrible uh, uh, energies all, all mixed up together. And someone like Nietzsche, someone like Wagner, just throws that back at us, mirrors it back at us in a way that. A lot of people find uncomfortable, but it is the reality. <laughs> That's who we are. <laughs> I can't believe I keep on going back to this <laughs> stupid book I read <laughs> freshman year in philosophy class. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. I just can't get out of my own head with this damn book. And I never thought of my wildest imagination. <laughs> I'd still be thinking about this guy yeah. my entire life. Well, it's that's great though. That's I think that's that's part of the, you know, when when these figures from from a very different time and a very different world kind of have that that grip on us you know we're bringing as much to it as you know they are bringing to us you know it is it really is a relationship you know you are taking aspects of it and and applying it in ways that that Nietzsche himself you know couldn't have imagined um but i think every every artist however much they want to control what people think of their work and so often they do you know uh they also have to accept and ultimately encourage the the fact that it, it is going to sort of run away from them and, and people you know of their own time and of the of the future are going to make something you know very different of it um, and that's that's why it stays alive you know it, right. it becomes immortal <coughs> an artwork becomes immortal the moment I think it is just radically misinterpreted <laughs> like you know put into some context that like has nothing to do with what the the creator intended you know uh that's when it like comes back to life in a sense i have no idea what nietzsche would say <laughs> of this uh i give this to a lot of my exec chefs to think about when they're making a dish and it's uh, early on in 
um, birth of tragedy, where the quote is that, you know, he wants to transform Beethoven's hymn to joy into a painting. Let your imagination conceive the multitudes bowing to the dust, awestruck, that you will approach the Dionysian. And <laughs> I want them to make food that tastes like that, to make someone awestruck of like, holy fuck, what just happened? Right. And you're never going to get there. It's almost an impossibility. Right. And I know that he was obviously talking about music, but I do believe there's ways you can make food or at least try in that failing, you know, there's success in that failure. And I have the hardest time trying to convince my <laughs> team to to do that because right. it's so much safer to just play by the book. Right. Yeah. But what, what you're also, what Nietzsche is talking about and what you're doing is so important, which is, you know, one art form bouncing into another, you know, and, and, and how, it's not all insular, you know, and a, and a, a work of music doesn't just affect, you know, other other musicians and other composers. Uh, it, it 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 leaps out and affects someone in a very different field in a way that you can't even analyze. Because like, how does how does a music piece of music affect a painting? You know, how does uh, a work of German philosophy affect? Food, you you know, you're, you can't pin it down. There's no like, you know, there's gonna be no chemical evidence <laughs> of some kind of transaction there. Uh, it's associations, uh, uh, kind of in 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 the brain. But that's so important, and that's what my, my next book is going to be about. You know, the book is about uh, Wagnerism as music affecting the other arts. I'm not going to actually talk about Wagner affecting other musicians at all. Uh, it's about the painters and the and the writers and and it's such a weird relationship, you know, because it is, it is like a, it's an impossible translation, you know. Uh, uh, it does. But you did such a good job of explaining that, and <clears throat> it's sort of what you did with the 20th century in your first book, "The Rest right. Is Noise." So I, I'm looking forward to to reading this new book. Thanks, thanks so much. When, when's it going to come out? Uh, September of next year. Okay, uh, so it's kind of grinding through the process now. Of uh, <laughs> anything else? You're, anything else you're working on? Um, I uh, will have. Other pieces for the New Yorker coming up, the reviews, as well as uh, a few longer pieces. Uh, I want to write about Emma Grace in Los Angeles, uh, all the European composers and authors who came here in the 1930s, uh, Thomas Mann, and so on. It's it's a somewhat forgotten aspect of LA history, but really important. And it's left all kinds of traces uh, here. So I'm, I'm poking around in that right now. For yeah. people that are not familiar with the, the, the goings-ons and happenings of, of modern classical music? What are some composers that they should check out or artists? Sure, yeah. Well, you know, one composer that I find few people can really resist is Arvo Pärt, uh, P-A-R-T, with an umlaut over the A, uh, Estonian composer who in the 1970s started writing this very quiet, very slow-moving uh more or less minimal, minimalist uh, music, but he was also heavily influenced by religious ideas, uh, um, and and it's it's music that people just tend to kind of be mesmerized by it from the first time they they hear it, uh, and and so he's always uh, someone that, that I find people respond to, um, or from the same period, Steve Reich, uh, uh, the great. Uh, American minimalist composer, uh, his piece "Music for Eighteen Musicians" uh, is is a work that will probably counteract uh, a lot of what 
people might associate, you know, assume kind of modern music is going to sound like. And he influenced some like famous rock music. Oh yeah, Velvet Underground and uh, no, not Velvet Underground. uh, Brian Brian Eno and yeah, Talking Heads probably. Um, uh, So it is it is music that's kind of is somewhere between um, classical music and and modern jazz and 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 the the kind of you know later art rock tradition Um, and uh, and you know. But, you know, there's also the Rite of Spring, you know, or something you know, like very, very classic. So uh, there's so many different places you can begin. There's no one, one right way in. Well, Alex, it was a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Sure. Thank cool. you. This is awesome. Thank you. Well, that was Alex Ross, one of the smartest writers out there. I was so thankful that he agreed to come on our podcast. We recorded this again in L.A. at the Ringer Studios before the holidays, before Christmas, I think. Anyway, studying trends matter. And if I can have a better insight in terms of how Nietzsche and Wagner, two titans of their fields, particularly Wagner, sort of had an impact on culture and how it overlaps with so many other parts of you know the world we know today— I think it makes sense to study this stuff a little bit deeper. And for a guy like me, I, I need to have some associative thinking. So it's important for me to talk to someone that's an expert in their field, such as Alex. And you know, maybe the best way to understand the future is to better understand the past. And I'm not the first person to say that. It's why I think people study history. And the older I get, the more and more I want to study all the things I sort of glossed over when I was younger. And I think if we study high-end dining and where it's going and the trials and tribulations as to the relevancy of certain kinds of food and high-end dining, I think you might find some parallels in terms of how classical music has evolved. And while it's still here today and how it's morphed into different things that may or may not be pleasing to hear, there's still a lot of talented people making this. Again, I'm not a classical music expert at all, but talking to Alex and talking to some of my friends that are very well-versed in classical music, maybe there's a way for food to see what happened there. It sort of like was an accident that uh, Alex was talking about Nietzsche, but you know, I just feel like how he wrote about him in his article Nietzsche's Eternal Struggle, that it was one of the best explanations of his philosophy. Anyway, getting into some Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com questions. Let's see here. Lex Miranda writes in, what small city would you put against a large city culinary-wise? I would put my city, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, against any. I think because we are known as the refugee capital of the U.S., we have some of the best diverse cuisine. Lex Miranda, I had no idea Lancaster, PA was as diverse as you say it is. I would love to learn more. Um, I actually don't even know what to say. That's cool. I love the fact that that can happen. In terms of the best small cities, I don't know. Like Growing up in Northern Virginia, it's like a suburb of a larger city or a smaller city, right? Like Annandale, Virginia, to me, has great Korean food. It also has great Salvadorian cuisine. And uh, it's just a great place to eat. I mean, 
Falls Church also has some good things to eat, but that was, it's been a long time, but I, I do know I still go to visit Annadale with my parents and I'm always pleased as to how delicious it is. And it's a place where my mom and dad probably go at least once a week if they are feeling up to it. But, um, you know, Lancaster PA, I'm going to learn more, uh, probably look it up right after I stop this podcast. But to be honest, Lex, I don't know that much about small cities. I'm sorry. Most of my food knowledge tends to come from bigger places on the on the coasts. So there's a lot for me to mine and to study. And uh, if you have some places to eat in Lancaster, PA, Lex, please send us and we'll read them on there. Courtney Makashima writes in to ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com. I've been really enjoying the podcast, and my husband and I finally got a chance to eat at Momofuku in Las Vegas, and it was amazing. I live in Silicon Valley, so I was wondering if you will ever open a restaurant near the Bay Area. Courtney, I don't know if I will ever open a restaurant in the Bay Area. I mean, listen, some of my best friends have restaurants in the Bay Area, and they're just crush it. They're just kicking ass, and uh, I couldn't be prouder of them, and San Francisco and the Bay Area has terrific food. Oakland's got it going on. Silicon Valley, on the other hand, I don't know that much about. So maybe one day we'll open a restaurant. Obviously, I got in a ton of trouble like 10 years ago, 2009-ish, when I did a talk with Anthony Bourdain. It was probably like the first year New York Food and Wine Festival, and I got a little drunk, and it got me in a ton of trouble because I said, San Francisco, the Bay Area, everyone eats figs on a plate don't want to get too deep into that but it caused this giant fucking shitstorm and the reality is i love the bay area i love the produce and the farmers markets there but i don't know if i'll ever open a restaurant there because i don't know um once i say i don't know if we'll open a restaurant there i'm always like yeah maybe we will so courtney i'm gonna say maybe how about that <laughs> that's it guys Please keep on sending those questions in to askdave at majordomemedia.com or give us five stars on iTunes and write in a question on the comment part. Anyway, I'm in Las Vegas. I am not partying. I am, uh, I've been working my ass off and uh, I haven't slept in a while. So I feel tired and I'm going to go to bed. Good night, guys. Talk to you next week. <laughs>